Okay, uh, Verizon says it's 10, 10.30. So it's hard to believe we are at the end of the great divorce. Uh, it's hard to believe we're getting close to the end of the summer. Uh, just so that you know, Oxford, good, just so that you know, uh, Oxford t-shirt back there. Um, yeah, if you ever, I, I have taken trips to Oxford to do C.S. Lewis stuff. So, um, stay tuned. Stay tuned. You can go to Oxford in England, do C.S. Lewis and John Wesley stuff uh, together, uh, which is a lot of fun. Uh, um, yeah, it's hard to believe the summer is about over. So, uh, Labor Day is quickly approaching. Um, I do return back. We return back to our normal schedule uh, after Labor Day. Uh, which means I'll do something on Monday mornings at 10.30 with that interdenominational Bible study, and then our Wednesday schedule. So again, just stay tuned. If, 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 Wednesday, if, Monday, if Monday mornings at 10.30 is your sweet spot, we'll keep offering stuff at Monday mornings at 10.30. And then, because um, we always have, and, yeah, and then, uh, then the Wednesday, 9.30, 6.45, we'll be, we'll be doing the Wednesday, 9.30, 6.45. We will resume back with this part two of the book of Acts, uh, which we will start with Paul's second missionary journey, chapter 13. Some of you just went and did with me Paul's second missionary journey. So that's, that's a good... That's a good um, um, Precursor for those of you that went with me on Paul's second missionary journey. But that's what we'll be doing on Wednesdays at 9.30 and then uh, at 6.45. Still trying to figure out, because I'll talk to some of those uh, ladies that have kept that, kept this 10.30 international Bible study going for 20 years. I'll sort of talk to them. They always say, do what you want to do. And I say, well, give me an idea. They say, do what you want to do. Um, <laughs> but I, 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 I will in the next week or so figure out what, what we'll study um, on Monday mornings. we come back next time? Next time you come back is uh, pay attention to the newsletter because Mondays will be different from Wednesdays. Uh, usually the Monday will start not the week after Labor Day. Well, yeah, because... Labor, not, not the week of Labor Day, because the week of Labor Day is, Labor Day is a Monday. Um, so the following Monday is when the Monday will start. The Wednesday will start on the 20th, uh, because of a big event we got here on the 20th. I mean, not on the 20th, on the 13th. Uh, but the Monday will start back the, the week after Labor Day, I'm sure. But uh, watch Wesley Weekly, Wesley uh, the Monthly Memo. If you don't get those... Call the church office, or if you're not frightened, you can go to the website and sign up, <laughs> and, and you can receive those, but uh, they'll go out. So, that's enough commercials. That's en enough commercials. So, look at the end. Look at the end of um, the great divorce. And I guess this is a note somebody left sidewalk. Somebody... I've got their to-do list. <laughs> Don't want to embarrass anybody, but if um, um, you, you, you need work on your car air conditioner. <laughs> so I know how important my to-do list are. I know how important my to-do list are. So we're wrapping up the great divorce at a point where C.S. Lewis is really wrapping up the great divorce. Uh, he is going to be much more philosophical uh, in this ending than he has been throughout the book. Um, I'm going to give you a Bible verse, two of them actually, that I think summarizes... If you want to take your Bible and turn to Philippians, this may be a verse, I hope it's a verse that you've come close to committing to memory, um, but it's a verse that I think summarizes what C.S. Lewis is doing in this section of the great divorce. And, 
And the way I've divided it up is I think the way he has divided it up in his mind. If you notice last week, we stopped in chapter 13 at his paraphrase of Psalm 91. After Sarah Smith kind of walks away from her husband, and you remember all that from last week. After the paraphrase of Psalm 91, you finish up chapter 13 with George MacDonald offering some explanation to the narrator. And then you go to that quick chapter 14, the vision of the chessboard. Um, So in this section, I believe he's really sort of wrapping up. Here's your verse. What chapter? Chapter 2. I'm going beginning at verse 12 of Philippians. And this is a good verse to help you do Christian theology in general. Um, Particularly if you're prone to theological discussion around the issues, and we all are, we've talked about them for 2,000 years. Is it free will or predestination? And the right biblical answer is... Now, if our... Puny little minds can't figure that out. That's okay. C.S. Lewis is going to give you permission to accept that. But so does the Apostle Paul. Such as, in, this, in, this, in these two verses, it's actually a verse and a half. Uh, well, I'll start with verse 12 of chapter 2, Philippians. Therefore, Paul says, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. So Paul's talking about living in obedience, making the right choices. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much, but, but much more in my absence. He's saying, keep obeying, even though I'm not there with you. Keep obeying. But here comes the um, rich, rich theological passage. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Well, if you only had that verse... You think, well, it's all about us. It's all about me. It's all about me working, doing the right things. And Paul knew that you would think that as soon as he said that, which is why he goes straight into verse 13, for it is God who works in you, both to will, or you can use the word foreordain if you want to right there, both to will, foreordain, and to work for his good pleasure. So if you ask Paul, is it free will or foreordination, preordination, or predestination? Paul would say both. It's some of both. C.S. Lewis in this closing section is going to kind of, because he's been giving you the whole book talking about the power of choice. Talking about the power of choice. It really matters what you do. Even the little things might have great ramifications heard one person explain it this way. You know, you invest a dollar right now in your retirement fund, and let's say you retire 40 years from now, that dollar is going to be a whole lot more than a dollar. It might just be a little thing you decide to do right now, a little decision you make, one dollar in your retirement fund, but over, over the years, through time, with compounded interest, that one dollar might really amount to more than you than you thought when you put that $1 in, in, in your retirement fund. So your actions matter. Your choices matter. They may have far graver or greater ramifications than you realize. They may seem minor at the moment. But again, go back to the beginning of the great divorce. Every action we do helps us become more of a heavenly creature or more of a hellish creature. Every, the person we become determines whether or not earth for us was the beginning of heaven or the beginning of hell. Because what we, what we began here is what we'll continue on with. If you are creating yourself to be more of an anti-God, hellish creature, yeah, this is the portal to hell for you. That's where you're ahead. This is the beginning. That's where you're ahead. Uh, if, if you're creating yourself to be more of a heavenly creature, a God-centered, God-focused, 
obedient creature underneath the Creator, this is your portal to heaven. Eternal life begins here, which is the Gospel of John, the Bible's definition of eternal life, heavenly life beginning here. Um, Or your hellish life can begin here. And that's why you will get what you have chosen in the end. All of that's been major themes throughout the great divorce. He's going to summarize it here in this section. So, look at your text uh, on page 134. You see his amazing paraphrase of Psalm 191. So part of your homework is go, go take this paraphrase and stick it beside Psalm 91. Uh, go, go look at how he's translating it for you. Psalm 91, by the way, is a well-known, well-loved psalm. It's also one, and this is going to tie to the end of the book, it is also one that was, I'm told, that was printed, that was on hanging on the walls, that was made available in the air raid shelters in London during the Blitzkrieg. It's that psalm about protection you probably know. Psalm 91 is popular. It's that psalm about protection. Now, probably the reason it occurs right here is you just watched Sarah Smith. Remember the whole Sarah Smith story. You just watched Sarah Smith being protected from her hellish husband. He tried to bring a little hell into her heaven. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. You can't transport your hellish ways into heaven. Uh, hell cannot veto heaven, which is where it says we're going to go to now. Hell cannot veto heaven. And, you know, so here's Sarah Smith, you know, great person in heaven, who's trying to talk her husband and his facade into staying, into choosing heaven, into wanting to be a heavenly creature. Well, of course, he doesn't want to, and he finally just becomes only the facade, and the facade even just passes away. But then what's going to strike the narrator is Sarah Smith's fine. Sarah Smith's happy. She goes on about her heavenly life. So um, the, the discussion becomes, well, how can you be happy in heaven if, if Frank's not there with you? If your Frank's not there with you. Well, again, somehow in God's mysterious sovereignty, hell is not going to influence heaven. Hell's not going to veto heaven. And hellish, hellish ways cannot come into heaven. And that's why as soon as Sarah Smith goes away, and as soon as you, you've heard the paraphrase of Psalm 91, um, you hear the narrator say on top of page 135, is it really tolerable? that she should be untouched by his misery, even his self-made misery. Is it really good that she's not letting someone she loved go to hell and that somehow not torment her? Um, Well, no, I suppose I, I don't want that. What then? I hardly know, sir. What some people, what some people say on earth is that the final loss of one soul gives the lie to all the joy of those who are saved. In other words, there are some people who are trying to sound um, profound, and they say, you know, I don't want heaven unless everybody can be there. Heaven won't be heaven unless everybody can be there. I don't want to believe in heaven unless heaven and hell can marry. And that in the end, we all end up in the same place. You know, I can't accept you know, um, heaven and hell being two different places, because I just won't be happy in heaven without my Frank. Well, that, that's, that's what the narrator here, and again, it's probably it's C.S. Lewis, that's what the narrator is saying to his guide, his theological guide uh, through heaven. Um, that's, that's what he's saying, and, you know, why is she not upset? Why can she just not go on? You know, why can she go on with her, her, her enjoyment of heaven and Frank just disappeared? He chose not to come. He chose not to show up. Uh, look at the bottom of the page. And this is just 
this is what say, this is what George McDonald's saying. The demand, the demand of the loveless and the self-imprisoned. That's a way of, of talking about the um, people who choose hell. The demand of the loveless and the self-imprisoned that they should be allowed to blackmail the universe. That till they consent to be happy on their own terms, no one else shall taste joy. That there should be the final power that hell should be able to veto heaven. Well, God and God's sovereignty has said you can choose hell and you can't go to hell thinking you done messed it up for everybody else. <laughs> that your loved ones are going to be in misery because you're not there. Somehow God is going to take care of that. That, um, yeah, they're not going to let the, the loveless, self-imprisoned blackmail the universe. They're not going to let hell and those who choose hell blackmail heaven. So, um, you know, not, not quite sure how God does that. But I think C.S. Lewis is right here. You know, hell is not going to make you miserable. The existence of hell is not going to make you miserable in heaven. Um, son, son, it must be one way or the other. Either the day must come when joy prevails. Joy prevails, good definition of heaven. There must come a day when joy prevails and all the makers of misery, yeah, we know some of those folks, and all the makers of misery are no longer able to infect it. Or else forever and ever the makers of misery can destroy in others the happiness that they reject for themselves. Yeah, Frank cannot make Sarah miserable for eternity. I know it has a grand sound to say. That, that, that you'll accept no salvation which leaves even one creature in the dark outside, but watch that sophistry, or you'll make a dog in a, in, in a manger the tyrant of the universe. Do you know what his reference is there? Again, don't tell C.S. Lewis that you didn't learn this in school. That's an Aesop's fable. That's the Aesop's fable where a dog goes and gets in the manger of hay. Dogs don't eat hay. But the dog is in the manger. He's not benefiting from being in the manger because dogs eat meat normally. That's what they want. But here's a dog in a manger. But guess what the dog's doing? He's growling at all the oxen who want to eat the hay. So this dog in the manger is making everybody miserable. He's not getting his meat. He's not letting the oxen eat the hay. So you can't allow a dog in the manger to become the tyrant of the universe. You can't allow the frank and the people who choose hell to override heaven, to veto heaven. So, um, yeah, somehow or another, that's part of the sovereign work of God. Um, but it will not, I'm on top of page 137, but it will not, at the cunning tears of hell... The cunning tears of hell. Think about that image. Impose on good the tyranny of evil. Every disease that submits to a cure shall be cured. But we will not call blue yellow to please those who insist on still having jaundice. Nor make a midden of the world's garden for the sake of some who cannot abide the smell of roses. Yeah, if you choose hell, that's not going to infect heaven. That's not going to infect um, the joy of heaven. Then he goes on to talk about how small hell is. Because again, the real world is heaven. This is what God created the world to be. This is the plan of God. This is the purpose of God. It's, you know, it's not going to be hell and heaven over here, rivalry for eternity. There will be in hell. But hell is going to be so miserable and so small and so... Um, insignificant. Now, they don't know that in hell. They think they're the universe. They still think they're the center of the universe. But for the real universe, what, was, what did he compare hell to? Or what did the bus come up through? Crack. A little crack. Yeah, you came up through that little crack. That's how insignificant you and hell were. Now, you got bigger when you came here. But yeah, it's not, you know, it's not like, again, if you did my angels and demons thing, in Christian theology, Satan is not the equal to 
to Jesus or God. Satan, who's Satan's counterpart? Michael the archangel. Yeah, make sure you keep the powers of the universe in their appropriate place. It's not God and devil kind of trying to ward out with each other. It's not heaven and hell kind of two equal places. Um, they're both real. But yeah, now hell will think that they're the center of the universe. They'll still think they're the center of the universe when they're there. So on page 138, McDonald says, Yes, all hell is smaller than one pebble of your earthly world. But it is smaller, uh, but it is smaller than one atom of this world, the real world. The real world. These are the Shadowlands. Look at Yon Butterfly. Memory Scottish. Look at Yon Butterfly. If it swallowed all hell, hell would not be big enough to do it any harm or to have any taste. What about that um, Napoleon was... Oh, they, it feels big to them. You go to hell, it's going to feel big to you. It feels big. So those light years were not really light years. It was just really... That's the whole universe to those people. Okay. But compared to heaven, it's just big. Yeah, people who choose hellish ways are not the smartest people in the universe. Well, no. <laughs> they don't even know what big means, or expansive, or real, or rational. They don't know that. They don't know that. Anyway, um, and then on page 139, he's continuing the same theme. For a damned soul is nearly no- nothing. It is shrunk, shut up in itself. Good beats upon the damned incessantly as sound waves beats on the ears of the deaf. But they cannot receive it. That might be part of their hell. Their fists are clenched. Their teeth are clenched. Their eyes fast shut. First they will not. In the end they cannot. Open their hands for <coughs> gifts or their mouth for food or their eyes to see. Then no one can ever reach them, only the greatest, capital G, of all can make himself small enough to enter hell. So hell is our natural home, but there is one who has entered our hell who can transport us to the other. Only the greatest of all can make himself small enough to enter the hell that humans create. And, and take us somewhere else. Um, by the way, on the top of page, or near the top of one of page one forty, uh, uh, C.S. Lewis helps George MacDonald out here, and C.S. Lewis still needs to do this because he loved, loved, loved George MacDonald, and people still will say George MacDonald was universalist. Um, universalist means that all people is all fine for everybody in the end, somewhere or another. That's universalism. Uh, there's the Unitarian Universalist Fellowship out there. They believe in Unitarianism. Jesus is not part of the Godhead, and they believe in universalism, um, which means that you know everything's going to work out fine for everybody in the end. And those two denominations merged a long time ago because you know. The small group of Unitarians and the small group of Universalists I this need to get together. Um, those are not mainstream Christian positions. Now, univer- now, both what's happened in a lot of mainline churches, there are a lot of Unitarians, and there's a lot of Universalists, maybe by default or ignorance, in mainline churches. You know, they're who aren't smart enough or honest enough to go join with the Unitarian Universalist. A United Methodist, I'm getting cranky in my old age, so I'm going to say what I'm getting ready to say. A United Methodist pastor in this city, and y'all can go research it, posted a Unitarian statement on Facebook within the last week. And she's in a United Methodist. Shouldn't have said that. <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> he, she is in United Methodist pulpit. And there's lots of she's, lots of she's around, even in this city, by the way. Lots of she's. Jesus was a great person, 
wonderful person, great teacher, taught great ethics, all of that stuff about his divinity, his supernaturalness, his miraculous stuff, all the stuff that Jefferson cut out of his Bible was just added later by the church, which is exactly what this person posted on her Facebook page recently. Yeah, It's not original and authentic. Jesus never claimed it for himself. The church told you this is what you need to think later. And the church wrote the Gospels. And the Gospels did come 40, 50, 60 years after Jesus. Yeah, they did. Um, but there were still apostles running around at that point who would have said, that's not what he said. Um, or he did say that. Anyway, so that's who the Unitarians are. And again, that's why you got Unitarianism floating around in mainline Christianity. You know, he's a great ethical teacher, but they can't do much or don't do much. You know, stuff like resurrection from the dead, virgin birth, healing the sick, walking on water. You know, that's why when, when Thomas Jefferson created what he called, the, he called the book, The Morals of Jesus, today is called the Jefferson Bible, when he took the Gospels and literally took scissors and cut out the miraculous, he didn't have much left in the Gospels. Why did he do that? Because he was an enlightened deist. He was a Unitarian. He was. He was a Unitarian. That came out of the Enlightenment movement toward the end of the 18th century. My ancestor, my great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-uncle, George Washington, he had no children. He had no children, so I'm a direct descendant of his um, brother and father. Um, he had no children. George was in that era. He believed in God. He believed in providence. He usually referred to God as providence. Now, this was bad marital practice. He would go with Martha to Christ Church Alexandria, Church of England, Anglican. He would leave her when they started with the Eucharist. Because he thought that was spooky, stupid, stupid, superstitious body blood of Jesus. Yeah, he was too enlightened for that. A lot of our early, a lot of the founding fathers were, they believed in God, they were not necessarily Orthodox Christians. Um, that was the era. That's why you had the first Great Awakening, 1730s, 1740s, started fading away by 1760. It got bad. Unitarianism, universalism. 1800, what do you have again? The Second Great Awakening begins, the Great Revival Movement. Yeah, some of our founding fathers, they believe, I don't know why George couldn't say God. He just called him Providence, which I'll accept that. He capitalized the word Providence. And I love George Washington. I got a whole shelf of George Washington biographies. Um, when I get to heaven, and I hope he's there, I'm going to straighten my relative out. I said, why wouldn't you say God? And let me tell you who Jesus was. Uh, yeah, I mean, again, C.S. Lewis became a theist before he became a Christian. You can believe in God. The devil believes in God without being a Christian. That's why I said, because uh, I don't get to make the if. final judgment. Oh, and I, and I, I said, if, either, if, yeah, if. I, Martha might have got to him by the time he died in 1799. Well, Martha outlived him. So I hope Martha, hope Martha, well, I won't say that. Sorry, I hope Martha crammed communion down his mouth as he was dying. It wouldn't do it, but to prepare him for who is getting ready to meet. But anyway, yeah, you can believe in God with not believing in Jesus. Anyway, that's why um, George MacDonald was not, and here it answers your question, George MacDonald was not universalist. That's why he got this strange exchange on top of page, or almost on top of page 140. In your own book, sir, you were a universalist. People have accused George MacDonald of that. You talked as if all men would be saved, and St. Paul too. He said St. Paul said that. Ye can know nothing of the end of things or nothing expressible in those terms. It may be, as the Lord said to the Lady Julian, that all will be well and all will be well and all manner of things will be well. But is ill, is sick, is wrong 
talking of such questions. So um, let me quote the Vatican to you. As a Christian, you should hope that all are redeemed. All what? Are, are redeemed, saved. As a Christian, you cannot say they will be. Now, your Christian charity, I mean, I don't get a kick out of knowing people go to hell. At least most people. Sometimes I want to send a few. <laughs> but I, I don't get a kick out of knowing people. That's why even Charles Haddon Spurgeon told his preachers he drank, when you preach of hell, you should preach of hell with tears in your eyes. So, yeah, I mean, we should hope all are redeemed, all are saved. But the faith and the in the New Testament cannot, you cannot say dogmatically they will be. And that's all, that's all, that's all that George MacDonald said. Maybe. Maybe. Don't tell Jesus who he can save and who he can't save. Uh, the conviction of the church is everyone that's saved is saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know for sure who that includes and who that doesn't include. Like I said, Martha might have got to George before the end. I don't know. I hope he's there. And if he's there, I'll say, now you understand who Jesus is, don't you, George? <laughs> I hope he's there. So we should hope for universalism. Please don't take joy in knowing that some people go to hell. We should, we should hope, but dogmatically, doctrinally, we can't teach that like the universalists do. They just say, yeah, everybody's, gone. everybody's going there. Because how, how can a good God send anybody to hell? What's C.S. Lewis's answer to that? He doesn't. He doesn't. He lets you choose. A good God so respects you. And this is what we're getting to after this. A good God so respects you, He'll let you choose it. He will not override your freedom. He will not override your freedom. So let me kind of summarize and then show you what's this strange stuff going on in chapter 14. So, if I were to... The plight of Frank... Remember Frank, Sarah's. The plight of Frank has not troubled Sarah at all. The only people in hell are those who choose to be there. God sends nobody there. The only people in hell are those who choose to be there. The presence of God would be unbearable to those people. Again, that's why they get back on the bus and go. The presence of God, you're going to get to see the light in a minute. The presence of God, it would be unbearable to the people who choose hell. So God allows them to have what they choose rather than force himself upon anyone. Um, and God does not allow those who choose to reject him to infect or affect the eternal destiny of those who do accept him. Um, that's Orthodox Christianity, and that's all, G that's all C.S. Lewis is trying to get across here. Um, um, now, you want to really get to the questions about predestination or choice, free will. In, in chapter 14. In chapter 14, you need to pay close attention to it. You need to pay close attention to... This is a work of fiction. It's not a theological treatise on what hell may look like or what heaven may look like. Um, you, you see that you come to this strange concluding chapter. He sees a chessboard. A guy, Janet, forms on its chessboard... They are motionless on the chessboard. Try to visualize this. They're motionless on the chessboard. Um, but they are puppets representative of some, great, some of the great presences that stood by. In other words, the pieces on the chessboard are being controlled from elsewhere, are being controlled from, by somebody else. That's sort of a literary presentation for predestination. You know, God is controlling every of all of your actions. God is is making you do everything you do. God is moving you like, you know, uh, pieces on a chessboard. Um, and again, I've always said, "Que sera, sera's 
theology according to Doris Day, not the Bible. Whatever will be, will be, and you just are being... That's, that's fatalism, that's hardcore predestinarianism, um, that's hardcore foreordination. Everything's chosen beforehand. Before, before you ever breathed a breath, everything in your life was already chosen and ordered. That's sort of one extreme. So that's one extreme. Now, um, that's one extreme, and some Christians fall to that. I mean, like even when Tammy and I, and I'm sure I've, you've heard me use this illustration, because these illustrations abound. When our daughter Sarah was, was stillborn, I had people who pretty much told me that was God's will, that was God's plan, God decided that. God needed a flower for His garden, and you can have other children. Yeah, just sometimes just please use common sense when you say things to people. But anyway, so people just kind of painted God as this horrible creature who had nothing better that day than to take the life of my child. You know, again, that radical predestination just believes the only power in the world is God. The only person in the world controlling everything is God. So when you say God is in control, you need to define that. Was God in control of the Holocaust? Now, if you mean God will ultimately get what God wants one day, yeah, God's in control. He superintends. He will get what he wants. The kingdom will come. You can't stop the coming of the kingdom. By the way, I'll tell you something else the Bible teaches. You can't stop the spread of the gospel around the world. But that doesn't mean everything that we... Because, again, in Christian theology... Everything in the world is, the, all the, there's, the only power in the world is not just God. What's the unholy trinity that's at work in the world? Sin, flesh, and the devil. I mean, how many times have we said that in Christian theology? Five million times. Sin, my, my sin. Flesh, human nature, which I think you know is not perfect. I might make a mistake that might kill you. That's flesh, my, my, my brokenness, my imperfection. Sin, flesh, and the devil. Evil's at work in the world. So that's the world we're in right now. To do theology, don't make the kingdom that is to come one day where God rules everything as God rules today in heaven. That's the Lord's Prayer, by the way. That day's not yet. That day, you know, we look forward to thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's not today. I hope it's tomorrow maybe, but it's not. so far as I can tell, it's not today. So again... There's a sense in which, you know, it looks like we're chess pieces and we're just pawns of some divine power and everything, which that's great. That means I have to take no responsibility. The devil made me do it or God made me do it. But I don't have to take any responsibility for what I do. Christian theology will not let you go there. Christian theology will not let you go there. Now, does that mean God's not in control? Well, you've got to define that. Again, beware of theology according to bumper stickers. When you say God's in control, that doesn't mean God took the hands of that drunk and made him run over your child. That doesn't mean that God developed the Nazis and helped them create the furnaces. My father was a World War II soldier. He helped liberate Germany. My father almost never said anything about World War II. But one time he let it slip out, he remembered smelling the bodies burning. Because oh he helped liberate Berlin and some of those other areas. Don't, don't, don't lay that at God's doorstep. That's not Christianity. Anyway, so let's summarize the book. Look on top of page 144, almost the end of the book. So C.S. Lewis is here sort of being confused, which is fine. We don't have all the answers now. And by the way, we won't be omniscient in heaven. We don't get all the answers in heaven either. Only God is omniscient. We know what we need to know now, and we'll know what we need to know when we get to heaven. But only God's omniscient. I won't know, there'll never come a time I'll know everything. Anyway, so here's C.S. Lewis, confused. So um, he's, he's talking to his guide, George MacDonald. He says, these conversations... Between the spirits and the ghosts, remember who those are, were they only the mimicry of choices that had really been made long ago? 
Or might you not as well say, George McDonald says, anticipations of a choice that be made to be made at the end of all things. Again, foreordination is not the same thing as foreknowledge. God definitely has foreknowledge. The reason God has foreknowledge is there's no past, present, future to God. Which, you know, I'll go ahead and kind of give you a cliff note version of Christian theology. For God, who is outside of time, everything is just presence. That God knows everything that's happening. God knows everything that's going. There's no past, present, and future. You know, God doesn't get up on a, for God, God doesn't get up on a Monday and wonder what he's going to do on Tuesday. Calendar and time is part of creation. So, Outside of time, it's just the eternal present. God sees, God knows everything. Those of us stuck in time, which that's part of the kingdom not coming yet, those of us stuck in time, we have to make choices and make our way through time. So inside of time, it looks like free choice. Outside of time, it looks like predestination. Now, I'll just give you that in case you wonder how it can be both things. But that still probably brings as many questions as it does answers. But if you want a theological answer, that's how it can be both at the same time. God is not tyrannized by time. Anyway, so that's why George McDonald says, or might, or, or might ye as well say anticipations of a choice to be made at the end of all things. But you'll do better to do what? Say neither. Don't run from predestination. Or don't make too much of predestination. Don't make too much of free will. You know, if you think you got complete free will, I can prove you wrong on that one. When you get up, when you get up tomorrow, before you put your feet on the floor, you say to yourself, I got free will. I will not sin today. And tell me how that works out for you. So, you know, Martin Luther, by the way, said our free will is like a chained dog. We got freedom within a certain perimeter. But we don't have complete free will. We don't have radical free will any more than radical predestination. Uh, again, logic sometimes we think propels us to one or the other. But George McDonald says it's better to say neither. Ye saw the choices a bit more clearly than ye could see them on earth. That's part of the dream, just to see the choices. Uh, the lens was clear, but it was, it was still seen through the lens. Do not, watch this, do not ask of a vision in a dream, more than a vision in a dream can give. There's some answers you can't get from a vision and a dream. There's some answers you're not going to get here in this world. That's why, is he human or divine? Both. Is he 50-50? No, he's 100% of both. Bad math, perfect theology. Is it free will or predestination? Both. Well, how can it be both? Well, that's good theology. It may, be, it may be poor linear thinking on our behalf. Again, we're in time. God's not. So anyway, don't ask of a vision in a dream more than a vision in a dream can give. Uh, C.S. Lewis sort of being put in his place. A dream? Watch this. Here we get back to the narrative. J.R.R. Tolkien, you know who that is? One of C.S. Lewis's friends hated this ending. Because he said it was too abrupt. I love the abruptness of the ending. Um, so a dream, then, then, then am I not really here, sir? What's he asking? He's saying, so I'm not really dead? <laughs> no, son, said he kindly, taking my hand in his. It is not so good as that. Again, be careful how you define death. It's good. You know, like, please don't tell me that joke when I wish you happy birthday and you say to me what's better than the alternative. Because I'm, I might be in a bad mood. I might say, no, it's not. <laughs> I mean, if you're in Christ, death is the better alternative. Someone wrote to C.S. Lewis one time who was dying, which isn't that strange? We're all dying. When I was trained as a hospital chaplain, we were trained to never say anybody is terminal. Everybody in this room is terminal. You just need to figure that one out. We're all dying. Anyway, someone wrote C.S. Lewis one time who was, who was dying. She was smart enough to know it. And, and he wrote her back and he said, 
has this world been so kind to you? There are far better things ahead of us than anything we leave. Death is good for the Christian. So be careful. Well, having a birthday is better than the alternative. Be careful about what you're really saying and not realizing it. Um, we're in a secular culture where Christianity has been thrown in the garbage heap in the backyard. But be careful. Death for the Christian is a good thing. Now, it may not feel good, and I don't, I don't fear death. I'm a wimp when it comes to thinking about the process of dying because my wife will tell you I'm a bad patient. If I hurt, I want all the medicine I can get. So dying, I'm not real fond of, but death, I, I really don't fear death. I don't fear death. I'm very clear uh, about that. So anyway, so no son, he said, he kindly taking my hand in his. It is not so good as that. The bitter, of, the bitter drink of death is still before you. You know, that's why I've always said, you know, when Lazarus was raised from the dead because Mary and Martha wanted Jesus to do that, if I was Lazarus, I'd have given Mary and Martha fit. Why in the world do you bring me back? So that the bitter drink of death is still before you. Yeah, he's not dead. It's just a dream here. You are only dreaming. And if you come to tell of what you have seen, make it plain it was but a dream. So if you tell any of this, C.S. Lewis, please make sure nobody's foolish enough to think you're writing a theological treatise on what heaven and hell is like. Tell them you're having a dream. And if you come to tell what you see, make it plain that it was but a dream. See you make it very plain, which again he did in the preface of this book. Give no poor fool the pretext to think you, you are claiming knowledge of what no mortal knows. I'll have no Swedenborgs and no Vell Owens among my children. Did you Google those people? Swedenborg was a Lutheran theologian who in the latter part of the 1700s wrote all this stuff. He made trips to heaven and hell. And he wrote about his trips to heaven and hell, which led William Blake to write his poem on the marriage of heaven and hell. Yeah, Swedenborg, and there's books out there like that today. Where people, they'll tell you all about heaven and hell. They've been there and they, they, they brought you back and they're writing. Be careful. Be careful of that. Uh, you know, I'll have, no, I'll have no Swedenborgs nor Vell Owens. Vell Owens was a 20th century, late 19th century, early 20th century Church of England priest who did some of the same stuff Swedenborg did, but he, he was a spiritualist. He, he influenced Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Remember Sir, Sir Archibald? That's why Sir Arthur Conan Doyle became fanatic about trying to contact the next world. You know, give no poor fool the pretext to think you're claiming knowledge of what no mortal knows. I'll have no Swedenborgs, no Vell Owens among my children. God forbid it. Watch this. God forbid, God forbid, sir, said I, trying to look very wise. He has forbidden it. You know, that's what McDonald says, and I love this. He has forbidden it. Don't, don't tell people you know this stuff. He has forbidden it. That's what I'm telling you. As he said this, he looked more Scotch than ever. My Scottish blood likes that, even though I don't like the word Scotch there. We prefer Scottish or Scott. Scotch is what you drink. I was gazing steadfastly on his face. The vision of the chessmen had faded. And once more, the quiet woods and the cool light before sunrise were about us. Then, still looking at his face, I saw something that sent a quiver through my whole body. I stood at that moment with my back to the east. Where is he coming from, the east? Our altars face which way, the east? Where's Jerusalem at from here, the east? I stood at that moment with my back to the east in the mountains, and he facing me looked toward them. His face, MacDonald, who was looking that way, his face flushed with a new light. There's a brilliance going on behind me now. A fern 30 yards behind him, over there, over there, turned golden. The eastern side of every tree trunk grew bright. Shadows deepened. All the time there had been bird noises, trillings, chatterings, and the like, but now suddenly the full chorus was poured from every 
branch. Cocks were crowing. There was music of hounds and horns. Above all this, 10,000 tongues of men and woodland angels and wood itself sang. It comes, it comes, they sang. Seek, seek, sleepers awake. It comes, it comes, it comes. What's happening? It's, yeah, it's the end. The coming of the kingdom. Uh, the kingdoms of this whole world and universe shall become the kingdom of our God and His Christ. This is the day when thou wilt be done on earth and throughout all creation as is presently being done in heaven. This is the day when all creation is being redeemed. You see all these animals and all the chorus and all the, all the people that are participating. It comes, it comes, they sang. Sleepers awake. That, that's a quotation of the Bible. It comes, it comes, it comes. One dreadful glance over my shoulder. I essayed not enough to see or did I see the rim of the sunrise that shoots time dead. Again, we're, we're lost in time. We're tyrannized by time. Shoots time dead with golden arrows and puts to flight all phantasmal shapes. Screaming, watch this. Uh, I can't believe Tolkien didn't like this ending. Screaming, I buried my face in the folds of my teacher's robes. The morning, the morning, I cried. I am caught by the morning and I'm still a ghost. The morning's coming and I'm still hellish. I'm still a ghost. I still belong to the gray town. The mornings, the morning I cried, I'm caught by uh, the morning. I'm still a ghost. He buries his, yet pay attention to this, what comes later. He buries his head in the folds of his teacher's robes. But it was too late. The light, like solid blocks, pay attention to these blocks, intolerable of edge and weight, came thundering upon my head. So he's still a ghost. So the coming of the kingdom. Is not good for him. Next moment, the folds, here it comes real fast. Next moment, the folds of my teacher's garment were only the folds of the old ink-stained cloth on my study table, which I had pulled down, pulled down on with me as I fell from my chair. He'd been sleeping in his chair. He's a writer, ink-stained. The blocks of light he thought was blocks of light falling on him, were only the books which I had pulled off with it, falling about my head. I awoke in a cold room, hunched on the floor beside a black and empty grate, the clock striking three, clock striking three, and the siren howling overhead. What's the siren howling for? Yeah, this was written in 1943. Why striking three? Tell me what happened at three o'clock, according to the Gospel of Mark. Jesus died. So he wakes up horrified, thinking he's dying, and he's not ready. The dream taught him he wasn't ready to die. And Tolkien thought it ended too abruptly. <laughs> it ends abruptly. Um, his work's not done. You notice the world that he's coming back to feels like Great Town. London sure did during the Blitzkrieg. It felt like hell beginning. So he, he wakes up after his dream, kind of like, remember, we'll go back to our beginning, kind of like Ebenezer Scrooge. I think, think C.S. Lewis has the Christmas carol in mind when he writes this. One of the things he has in mind. He wakes up. So finish the story. How do you think his life was different after he had this Christmas Carol Scrooge type dream? Give me some. How do you think his life was different? He went out and he bought a duck or a turkey and took it to the Cratchits' home for <laughs> Christmas. Yeah, I'm sure he lived differently. And again, I think he ends kind of like the Gospel of Mark ends so abruptly. You know, the women leaving the tomb in fear. I think Mark's always done that because he wants you to read yourself into the story. Okay, read yourself into the story. What are you going to do now? You're, you're still kind of here in this world that can either be Greytown, the beginning of Greytown for you, or it can be the beginning of the other world for you. Yeah, think about your choices. Think about your... Think about who's the center of your life. Think about all these people you just met in this bizarre dream you had. 
Um, I'm, yes, what am I doing? Am, am I preparing to be? Am I preparing to feel at home in hell, or am I preparing to feel at home in heaven? Where's going to feel like my home for me? Remember, he wanted to name this "Who Goes Home," and his editor said, "No, name it the Great Divorce." Uh, but yeah, who's which is going to feel like home to you? Because he'll let you have which feels like home to you. And, and you did in life after that, you stopped and think, I would think, before you made a decision. Yeah. I mean, think about, yeah, again, maybe minor choices, but in the light of eternity, that might have been important stuff you were dealing with. Um, any concluding remarks? How are you different after you spent time? Um, it's been amazing because what I've done for 20 years is let people read this book and I had one conversation with them after they read the book. So it's the first time I've spent three months or however long it's been going through this book. I've been a little exhausting, by the way. Um, so yeah, how's, how is your life different? I think I made a lot of comments wrong. And I don't like the word Unitarian, but mm-hmm. I can see myself in that a little bit. I always heard they believed in reincarnation. I didn't like that, but... Well, see, if you go to Unitarian Universalist Fellowship, you don't have to be Christian to go there. They'll do a little Buddhism. They'll do a little Hinduism. They'll do the gonging. Yeah. They'll do the prayer wheel. So they will... They won't, I mean, if, you don't, if, you, if you're a Unitarian Universalist, which means you have to throw a whole bunch of Christian faith out, some of them do embrace reincarnation. But they can embrace what they want to embrace. That the Lord had a plan for us. Mm-hmm. We make our own decisions. And I'm a little confused by that now. Good. So what you need to do is God has a plan for you. You make your own decisions. You need to be careful and make sure your decisions fit that plan. He's got a plan, but it's our choice whether we follow it. That's right. I mean, you know, I mean, it's, God's got a plan for your life. Now, abusing your wife is probably not part of that plan. So yeah, you need to make sure your cho- your you know your make sure your choices fit that plan. He has a plan for your life. Um, I mean, like, and here's an illustration I use. Um, and and next Wednesday, gosh, summer's gone. This coming Sunday's here. So next Wednesday, Tam and I are flying to Rome for lots of reasons. We're going to enjoy a long Labor Day. Now, here's my illustration. I hope. This is, all illustrations, all metaphors fall apart at some point. I'm flying to Rome. I will go to Rome. Now, I may go through London. I may go through Frankfurt. I may go through Paris. I have some choices. God has maybe foreordained I'm going to Rome. But I get to, or my wife gets to make the flight arrangements. <laughs> And I tell them to help my impatient self, but she makes the flight arrangement. So yeah, we, God has a plan, an overriding, overarching plan. That's what I say to people, and they may not know, I'm referencing great divorce. God will get you home before the dark. God will get you. If you're, if you're in Christ, God will get you home before the dark. What time is it going to be where you are at 530 next Sunday? I'm here. I'm here. I'm leaving the Wednesday after. No, I'm here. I'm here watching from the balcony as a non-voting, not member, watching what y'all are doing um, and praying. But no, I, yeah, that's why, I, yeah, it's Wednesday after I'm getting out of the country. Jeff, I, I, I've been, I thought about this, but I just want to thank you. I mean, you know, I've been a pastor for longer than you. <laughs> And, and I just want you to know that I've learned so much under your tutelage. Yes. I really yes. thank you. I thank you, Jeff, for your passion and for how you love Christ and your faith and how you honor God's word and then how that applies to people, intellects like C.S. Lewis. And I thought I was pretty smart until I came into this group. <laughs> then, you are. You are. I'm really, I'm really not, but I'm so impressed with this, and I thank you for, for doing this, and I'm looking forward to other classes, and I hope this, I hope this, this group is, is ready for other classes just to learn and grow. I thank you for God's gift of your intelligence and ability to put things together so that we can all understand it. 
So uh, I just want to make sure that I said that maybe on behalf of everybody else. Yes. yes. I just don't want anybody to assume that, well, you know, well, it's another class. <laughs> I want to thank you for it. Well, thank you. You're, you're, you're very kind, Quentin, and you're very embarrassing to me, but you're very kind. Um, but I had a choice. Thank you for letting me share. You had a choice whether or not you did that. You had a choice whether or not you did that. But, um, yeah, um, but thank you for letting me share my passion. Um, yeah, at the end of the day, when Tam and I are home from work, she doesn't really want me to share my passion about C.S. Lewis with her. Um, neither does Jaxie. We watch mindless TV. If it makes you feel better, one of my, another one of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes comes out of um, Letters to Malcolm, which, by the way, you're welcome to join my C.S. Lewis group that meets monthly at River Landing. Starts in September. We'll be reading Letters to Malcolm next year, um, which is an amazing short book of practical Christianity. In that book, one of the things he says about communion he says, remember, Jesus said, take, eat. He didn't say, take, understand. So, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, God looks at your heart, not your intellect. Now, he wants you to have both in good shape. You know, you were to love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Um, but, yeah, it's, um, yeah, work on both. Your, your mind and your heart. Can you imagine the conversations with those three people, Lewis, Tolkien, and Carol? Let me give you a good book to read. Give you two good books to read. And it's fun. Um, Peter Kraft is one of my heroes. Peter Kraft uh, is an amazing philosopher from um, uh, Boston College. He's written two little books. Um,